If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Romans, and today we're going to be finishing out the first chapter. Uh, we've been, really for several weeks now, making our way through, through the introduction, through that part where Paul introduced himself in verse 1 as one called to be an apostle, uh, set apart for the gospel of God. That's where we got the title of this series from. And we saw a clear articulation of the audience to whom Paul is writing this letter when he said in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So we know not only that Paul is the writer, but we also get a sense of his purpose in writing. And we know that this is not just a courtesy letter. Okay, He's not just writing because... He had some time on his hands. He's not bored and looking for something to do. There is a genuine purpose in his writing. And so after we see this rather affectionate introduction and a brief testimony from Paul of the power of the good news, he sort of flips the whole thing on him and launches uh, really with full force into a lengthy indictment or or charge, uh, starting all the way back in verse 18 against what he calls the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so we are continuing in that today. Okay, That's the trail that we are on, uh, all of us together, right now. And as we've been traveling down this road together, what started out feeling like sort of a gradual descent has now given way to more of a downward spiraling freefall into the depths of what we call, and here's one of those theological terms, uh, the total depravity of humanity because of sin. And so today we're nearing the bottom. Okay, So I I want you to know that up front. And I think it's going to be important that we understand that going forward uh, before we take that, well, before we take this next step. Okay, So let's get into this together. Let's go Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 28. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you that all of Scripture has been breathed out by you. That all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. That all of Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And so we look to your word here today. And God, I just ask that you would speak. That in all ways possible, you might move me out of the way. Don't let my stammering tongue be a roadblock. For anyone here, Lord, I pray that you would speak, that we might hear. That you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so the way that I have titled this, if you're tracking along with the outline, is, is a view from outside the garden. And, and what I mean by that is, is simply that as you read these words and as they begin to sink into your heart and you begin to understand the weight of what Paul is describing, it causes some tension, uh, some real palpable tension to build up in my heart, because I know that Paul is not only describing a past world. He's, he's writing, of course, to the first century, but the truth is that, is that there is something very familiar about the culture that he's describing. And I realize that the picture that is being painted for us is of the very world that my children are being raised in today. And as I read through this, as I have read through it many Many times this week, I kept waiting, almost anticipating that beautiful three-letter word, but, in there. You know, that's often just that one word, one of the most glorious statements in all of Scripture. I'll give you an example. In Ephesians 2-3, we read that apart from God, we were, by nature, Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's Paul's short version description of what he's unpacking in detail for us here in the letter to the Romans. And that is terrifying. Because that is the default position of man apart from God, apart from grace and mercy. And then 2.4 says this. Okay, so 2.3 says you're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 2.4 says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now that's a good one, right? We can agree, that's a good use of the word but. That's a, that's a hope of redemption verse signing, shining uh, like a light in the darkness of a condemnation verse. Okay? And then we might think of Romans 6.23. Now we're not there yet. We will eventually get to Romans chapter 6. At some point, um, where Paul is going to tell us, this is what he's going to say. He's going to say that the wages of sin is, right, you all know that. You, I don't even have to tell you. You know the wages of sin is death. That's one that hits home because we realize, if we're honest, if we have been given the eyes to see that we are, apart from the grace of God, broken sinners separated from God, and therefore, We are the very ones who deserve death. And if that were all that Romans 6.23 said, if all that it said was the wages of sin is death, we would be in big trouble. Because, hear hear me, I'll, I'll confess, I sin. And I'll confess for you, you sin too. And so we've earned, according to Romans 6.23, what my life has bought for me is death. And then we see it, okay? Here it comes, rising like the sun out of the darkness of eternal hopeless night. It's that glorious three-letter but just screaming of hope. For the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see how powerful that one little word can be. And so we might expect to see it here in this passage. Surely after the third time of hearing that God gave them up 
Surely Paul is now going to give us a glimmer of that hope. Remember, it was back in, in 124. He said this. He said, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, so that was the first one, right? And then in 126, he said, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then finally, finally now here in our passage, in verse 28, surely this is the culmination. This is rock bottom. This will be the proverbial strike three, saying God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, but... But there is no but. And so, so Paul paints this picture for us. For the people of God. For those who are called to be saints. Paul is painting a picture for us. As painful as it is to see. Of the reality of hell at work here on earth. Look back at verse 29. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice. Now, now I think that we can agree that none of those things, um, none of those things listed have ever been considered at any point in human history to be positive attributes. Okay, there's not a soul in this room who wants any of those words attached to them. And here's the thing. All of those words, all of those listed attributes, they share a common suffix in the original language. They end with the same suffix that we use for things like uh, pneumonia, malaria, leukemia, dementia. You see a theme here? When you read through the list as Paul originally wrote it, those, those words will stick out to you. Those four things, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. And they will sound like a list of diseases because that's what they are. They are destructive diseases of the soul that inevitably show themselves with the following symptoms. Look back at verse 29. Here we go. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. These are the practical outworkings of a life of sin. Paul is making it clear that there are some external manifestations of the internal diseases of the soul that is rooted in sin. The vertical ramifications... The separation between God and His fallen image bearers bring with them a true, progressive, horizontal impact between the image bearers of God with one another. And if the list wasn't already bad enough, Paul's going to continue. He says this, they are gossips. Look at that. Look at that. The word there literally translates as whisperers. Whisperers. Uh, People love secrets. I mean, that's a standard feature that you kind of come with from the womb. Uh, you know who loves secrets more than anyone? Don't guess, because you'll get in trouble. Here's who loves secrets more than anyone. The second child. The second child in the family loves secrets more than anyone else. The second child loves secrets because they're just far enough behind the older sibling that, that they miss out on some stuff, right? They're just a little bit out of the loop. And if you're parents, you, you know this. Our son, Tucker, is three and a half years behind his older sister. And so she was at the point of being able to spell stuff out before he even had a clue what was going on at all. And every family has their words that are on the do not say list. And these aren't bad words. Like everybody has that list too. That's a separate list. The do not say words are those that you spell out so that you don't get yourself in trouble, right? So for example, 
in our house. You just never say the word, and I'm going to spell it because they actually pipe our voices down into the nursery, and I like our nursery workers <laughs> too much to do that to them, but you never say the word N-A-P. Right? Don't do it. If you're a parent, you are with me because the moment that you say that word out loud, it's game over. The little one now knows what's coming. You have lost the element of surprise. You've given up the high ground and it is about to go bad for you. And so when you tell the older kid what's coming, you spell it out, right? It's, I'm, I'm going to put Logan down for a... N-A-P. Older kids like, gotcha. <laughs> Baby, not a clue, okay? They have no idea what's coming. So if my son Tucker, when he was a child, saw us whispering to one another, here's what he would do, because, he, because people love secrets. He would come up, he'd get right up against your ear and just go, and like the first time you wonder if you have a problem, Right? <laughs> The, the second time it happens, you just play along. Yeah, buddy. And he's good to go. And then you chunk him in the crib and it's go to bed. Um, here, you don't want him to know what's coming. So you spell it out. And little children love that. What Paul is saying here when he uses that word whispers is basically you gossip, you're a toddler. It kind of stings, doesn't it? You're a child. Gossips love to have a story, but it's all garbled nonsense that has no real place ever being said. That's why Paul told Timothy, flee youthful passions. Give up on that stuff. People see through it, but unfortunately, people also emulate it. And so he continues. Look at verse 30. They are gossips. The next one is slanderers. Do you see what Paul is building here? They're gossips. They always have to have something to say about someone. And you know what they do if they don't have anything to say about someone? They just make up some stuff. This is what they do. Did you hear the one about just fill in the blank? Oh, yeah, I mean, I heard that guy just fill in the blank. Really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I mean, look at him. Can't you? It's obvious. That's slander. People do that all the time. It's incredibly hurtful. It's terribly destructive. Look back at verse 30. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I want to pause there for just a second. If, my wife likes for us to watch the, the show Dateline, NBC. Anybody on that? Um, if you don't believe that the world is creative and finding new ways, new expressions of evil, you have been saved from watching that show. Everything on there makes you weep. Disobedient to parents. There you go, kids. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is a view from the bottom of the well. Far outside the garden. And, and here's what Paul is telling us today. This is the present ground on which we find our feet firmly planted. John Murray says on this, he says, As we scan the whole list, we cannot but be impressed with the apostles' insight into the depravity of human nature as apostatized from God. But, but here's the thing, it's, it gets even worse. Look at verse 32. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In his commentary on this passage, there's a guy called Kent Hughes. He identifies what he calls three dimensions of depravity. Okay, so he refers to verses 24 through 27 as the sensual dimension. Pastor Dale worked through that last week. He then calls verses 28 through 31 the mental dimension. God gave them up to a debased mind, right? They became wrong-headed. And then the third, the third he associates with verse 32. He calls it the ultimate dimension of depravity. Look at it again. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, okay, they do these things themselves, but give approval to those who practice them. We talked earlier about that three-letter word, but. Oftentimes it comes to us as a sign of hope. It comes to us like a glimmer, like a bright star set against the canvas of night. But that's not the case here. In this case, it, in this case that word takes us to the very bottom. Again, Hughes says, Man reaches the nadir of depravity when he heartily applauds those who give themselves to sin. To delight in those who do evil is a sure way to become even more degraded than the sinners one observes. On the same point, Charles Hodge, to take pleasure in those who do good makes us better. To delight in those who do evil is the surest way to become even more degraded than they are themselves. Remember, these people are not ignorant. They're not. Verse 32 makes that clear. It says they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that. They just don't care. This is the world in which we find ourselves today. Our culture is firmly committed to finding whatever the furthest point is on chasing the path of vertical descent out of the garden. And in this glimpse of the path to hell, where the world is applauding itself along the way, we're reminded of the future glory that sits before us today at the table. This is what it looks like to recover Eden. As the world seeks to tear itself apart, our hope is in the one who formed it from the very beginning. This list, a total of 21 items, present a picture of the view from outside the garden. But what if we flip that around? Like, what if we consider this list in the opposite form? What if we, I think the word I listed there, what if we inverted it? Follow me here for a second. I got this, I got this from a commentator, but I think, it's, I think it's appropriate. Imagine this reading of this passage. And since they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them up to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech. Always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful. And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Now, when I consider that world, it creates a type of stirring in my heart. Sort of a holy discontentment. 
with where we are and a holy longing for where we will be one day. You see, by flipping this passage on its head, inverting it, instead of finding ourselves on the road to hell, we find ourselves basking in the beauty of the hope of the gospel. And so instead of evil, only goodness. Instead of covetousness, only generosity. It's like that, it's like that scene from Luke 15. This is the idea that kept coming to my mind. It, in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, you, the son in that story has run off He's, he's messed around and lost the good things that the father in the story had given to him. We're told that he squandered his property in reckless living. By the way, that's what makes him prodigious. And so the son finds himself in the pit, like literally out in the field with the pigs. And he is, at that moment, firmly outside the garden. He has walked this path that we see laid out for us here in Romans 1. He's found himself at rock bottom of the free fall into sin. He is lost. He is hungry. He is broken. And and he's lost, hungry, and broken, and he knows it. He's aware of it because he knows that there is something better out there. You might recall that in the story, the son came to himself. That's what it says. He traveled the journey back home. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the upward climb that that must have felt like to him? To travel from the far country, right? Longing. Longing for just the scraps from his father's table instead of the the pods that he'd been sharing with the pigs. Embarrassment. Shame. Doubt. All of them hanging Hanging over him. How many times do you think he rehearsed that apology speech? How many times did he say to himself, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. How many times do you think he rehearsed that so he wouldn't mess it up? This is my one shot to get back in the good graces of my father. And then something happened. We're told in Luke 15, 20, this is what it says. He, he arose and came to his father. I need you, to, you, need to, you need to picture that. He's making this journey. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him. Now there are all sorts of cultural ramifications that Jesus' original hearers would have picked up on. But for us, for, for us today, can you just imagine that moment? Just that moment. Can you put yourself there? Like in his shoes, probably his bare feet at this point. In a moment, all that was broken, all the embarrassment, all the shame, all the doubt about how he'd be received, In a moment, all of that vanished because of the love of the Father. Remember, back in Romans 128, it says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, so what they did was they followed the course of the world. This is what the people were doing. It's what they, the world in this passage, they followed the course of the world. They followed the prince of the power of the air. 
The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right now we're back in Ephesians 2. And this was us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And here it comes. Please don't miss this. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, in Revelation 21, we get a glimpse of this. We get a glimpse of an inverted Romans 1, 28-32. Because in Revelation 21, we see the renewal and restoration of all things. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look. Can you do that? Can you look right now? Just behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. Oh, can you hear that? The former things have passed away. And then this happens. It says this, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Like that's what we get to look forward to. As we stand on this present ground, we have a beautiful hope of future glory when all things will be made new. I hope you believe that. Like, not because I'm up here weeping. That's just embarrassing for me. But I hope you believe that. Because the world and all its foolishness will try to convince you that you're wrong. Every news story, every blog post, every article you read will try and convince you that there is no hope. But we know how the story ends. And this, in this world, we must learn to live without compromising our call to faithful obedience. This is the one way, the one way that we join our great God in His work, in the recovery of Eden, in the renewal of all things.